Let's pray. Lord, our cold and ruthless enemy has designs for our life. But we praise you that his word and his will are not ultimate. That through Jesus Christ, we triumph over sin, we triumph over death. And because of what Christ has done, we come together this morning and say, Hallelujah! Glory be to our great God. Where would we be without you? Where would we be without the cross? God, would you impress upon us this morning the seriousness of our sin, but also the hope of the gospel? Come and be our teacher, I pray. Guard me from error and open our eyes and open our ears that we would learn and savor and enjoy you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you, although I'm usually with you, I'm just not standing here, so it's kind of fun to be here. If you've been uh, with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and um, as different themes and topics come out of the text, Aaron and Tyler have dealt with them, and if you missed anything from this series over the past several weeks, you can go back online and find it there. So we've seen in the first two chapters how God created everything. We saw the order in which things were made, and in Genesis 1.31, at the end of the chapter, we hear God say that everything He has made was very good. Chapter 2 shows then in great detail the creation of God's image bearers of Adam and Eve. We also saw in chapter 2 the roles that God designed for men and women to have, and chapter 2 closes with Adam and Eve enjoying God's creation in uninterrupted communion with Him. This morning, I'm going to continue our exposition into Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. So if you have not done so, I invite you to turn there to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 3. We will read verses 1 to 13, so follow along as I read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, up till this point in Genesis, it seemed that everything was going pretty good, right? Everything was very good in God's creation. Adam had named the animals. God had provided a suitable helper for him in Eve. And neither one of them had any idea that they didn't have clothes on. Things were going really well. So when we come to chapter 3, it should cause us to pause and say, what happened? Where did this serpent come from? Who is he? And why is he talking, of all things, to God's image bearers? Well, the Bible doesn't give a really clear, simple explanation of what happened. Sometime between the end of chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, there was an event of massive significance in the heavens. This morning, before we get into the main points of the text, I want to give just a brief summary of what the Bible does teach about these things. There's some pointers and some helps that we can read to understand more of this and hopefully shed a little bit of light on this before we get into the main portion of the text. It is almost universally held that the serpent is Satan. How it is that he came to be evil or came to be in the garden is a bit of a mystery. But for all the things that we don't know in the Bible, there are always things that we can know. And I want to make a couple observations and take you to a couple different texts so that we can increase our understanding of the passage and the implications of it. So first notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And before we get the idea that Satan is some sort of self-determining, autonomous, in other words, he makes up his own mind and does whatever he wants, before we start thinking that way, we should realize that he is a created being and therefore is subject to his creator as all other creatures are. Jesus Christ and his sovereign lordship over the universe that he created has absolute authority over the serpent and all of his evil angels. I get this from two places in Scripture. You don't have to go. You can listen along. First of all, think of the account of Job. If you've read the book of Job, Satan has wicked and evil designs for Job in order to try to trip him up and prove to God that God only blesses those who love him because he gives them things. You remember the account of Job? But he has to come before Almighty God and get permission to touch Job. You can read about that in Job chapters 1 and 2. Secondly, in Mark's gospel, we read an interesting account right off the bat in chapter 1. And we see Jesus cleansing a man from demon possession. 
And listen to what they say of him in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, after this happens. And all who saw this were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands, and even the evil spirits obey him. There is no rogue power in the universe that is outside of the control of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and he exercises this authority over everything that he created, and that includes Satan. Satan has to get permission from God to carry out his designs. This will be very important as we get to the end of this message this morning. But where did he come from? How did the perfect paradise of God become infected with an evil creature like Satan? Again, the Bible doesn't make this explicit, but it does give us some pointers, and I want to show you a couple of those this morning. It seems from the reading of Scripture that Satan was created along with all the other angels. We saw that in verse 1. He was a created being. But that at some point, he was puffed up with pride and led a host of angels with him into rebellion against God and was therefore cast out of heaven and sentenced to eventual destruction. I get this from a couple New Testament passages. First, consider Jude, verse 6. There's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude, verse 6, says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Interesting. Or 2 Peter 2.4, Peter says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So it appeared that at some point between the end of Genesis 2 and the start of chapter 3, there was in heaven a rebellion, an insurrection where Satan led a host of angels that did not stay within their position of authority, in other words, where they had been created to be, and as were a result, were cast out of heaven. Jesus actually mentions this almost in passing in Luke chapter 10, when he sends out the 72 and they come back all excited and they're telling Jesus about what happened and how they had authority over evil spirits and they're all pumped up about this. And Jesus says this in verse 17 of chapter 10. They come back and say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. So Jesus mentions this event. Now, some people also think that Isaiah 14 is speaking of this and talks about Lucifer and his fall from heaven. I'm not convinced that's actually what's being depicted there, but I'll leave that for your study and consideration. You can go to Isaiah 14 and read more of that. So I think from reading of these texts and from an understanding of the whole of Scripture, we can conclude that Satan was a created being, that he led a rebellion against God, but what would cause a created being to do such a thing? What was the sin that led to this casting out of God's presence? I think we have a pointer if you were in Sunday school. Tyler actually read this text. And it's actually it's in 1 Timothy 3.6. Paul is in the list of qualifications for elders, talking about what the character of the men who lead the church should be. And this is what he says in verse 6, chapter 3. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The sin that led to the fall of Satan is pride. Self-exaltation. And from that moment on, he has been feverishly trying to bring down as many of God's image bearers as he can with him. Scripture is clear that all of creation has been tainted by sin. But Satan has focused his efforts not only on the created universe, but especially on the image bearers of his own creator. He hates God and has been focusing his attacks on the one place that God has seen most clearly in the world, and that's on those who reflect the image of God. So, that's the story as we know it leading up to Genesis 3, and again, that's not meant to be a concise, exhaustive account. That's merely giving you some pointers as to what may have happened leading up to that. So as we look at this passage this morning, Genesis 3, 1 to 13, I can summarize the passage in this way. In order to recognize sin and temptation for what they really are, we need to understand their origin, nature, and purpose. This is not a message about how to fight sin. That's important to know. And that's an implication coming out of this. What this is about in this text is recognizing where it came from, the tools that Satan uses to try to trip us up, and the ultimate purpose of these things. So, I have three main points this morning, and I'll put them up on the screen as we move along to help you navigate. We're going to look first at the origin of all sin. See where it started, where it came from. We're going to look at the nature of sin and temptation. And then finally, we're going to go to the New Testament and connect a couple of texts and see the purpose of sin. And so with that in mind, let's jump in together to point number one, the origin of all sin. In this point, I want to ask the question, where did it all begin? It's important for us to know where and how a thing started so that we can better understand the present-day implications for us. It's the difference between um, taking care of your own children and watching somebody else's kids. With your own kids, you know the entire history. You know from birth right up until this very second. You know how to deal with the problems that come up because they're yours. You know the complete history. Someone else's kids, you just have them right now, and you don't really know what has happened in the past. And when trouble comes up or things arise, you might handle it differently because you're not sure about the background. And so I want to make sure that we know the origins of sin and temptation. And so in order to know how to deal with these things, we need to know how they came into being and so we can properly and rightly deal with them in our context. I think it's helpful to see from this passage that sin has been a problem from the beginning of time. It's not a new development. Things are not getting worse and worse, although it often seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like things are getting more evil and more rampant and wicked. But sin has been there from Genesis 3 on. It is the problem that has plagued the universe from Genesis 3 onward. Now, when I speak of origin, what I mean is how did it all start? 
We already saw that pride was the thing that caused Satan to exalt himself above the position that he was placed in, above God in his own mind. And I would suggest to you this morning that pride is at the root of all of our sins. Maybe not in a direct causality way, like that it's not necessarily that's the exact direct corollary to all of our sin, but underneath the layers of our lives, and I speak for myself, there's this desire to dethrone God and take His place. Now, you might not even articulate it that way, but that's what's going on. We want control of our life, and what that's saying is that I think I can do a better job than somebody else in ordering my own life, in deciding what I'm to do. This was a sin that ensnared Adam and Eve. I see this in verses 4 to 5. You can read along with me. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Exalt yourself. That's what he's saying. In other words, you can do better. Don't listen to God. What does he know? You can do better. You order your life. You determine what you're going to do. And through lies and deceit and half-truths, the serpent leads Adam and Eve into the sin of pride, which is the birthplace of their rebellion against God. One benefit of seeing the origin of sin is seeing that in obeying our sinful desires, when you give in to sin and temptation and you obey those desires, you are actually pleasing Satan. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It's the truth. He wants us to disobey God. His pleasure is our harm, like we just sang. He hates God and he hates you if you're a believer. And in doing Satan's will, you are serving the very one who wants your destruction more than anything in the world. Another benefit of knowing the origin of sin is seeing that nothing has changed from the beginning. Sometimes we have this idea of sin that, well, it's not the same as it was. We don't deal with things the same way we did before. Things are progressing. We're getting better. We're getting more advanced. We have better ways to deal with things now. Malarkey. Sin is sin, and it always has been. That's the importance of knowing origin. Notice the tactics that Satan uses to get Eve to fall into this sin. He uses half-truth. He uses twisted truth. He takes the truth and twists it around. He lies. He distorts God's good design and makes her think that the design is heavy-handed and restrictive and like a shirt that's got a collar that's too tight, just want to get it off. Yeah, that's what God's designs are. It's a lie. And aren't these the same things that we're fighting against right now? Truth being twisted, lies being told, half-truths, a little bit of truth to make you think it's good. Nothing's changed. This is why it's so important to know that things have been happening the same way from the start. It helps us to recognize sin, and in doing so, we know how to better fight against it. Now let's move on to the second point. And we're going to see the nature of sin and temptation. Now when I talk about 
the nature of sin and temptation, I want to address the issue of tactics or strategies. What are the tools that Satan used here and that he uses now, and how does he use them? And right off the bat, I would say that we need to understand this so that we are well-equipped to combat the temptations to sin that come up to us. Talking to Tyler about this this week, and he made the comment that doctors and scientists study sickness and disease for thousands of hours so that they can recognize it when it comes up. And in a similar way, we need to study and know the sin that is so easily grabbing for us so that we can recognize it and deal with it. So let's read verses 1 through 5 again. And as we do, look for the answer to the question of tactics and tools. What is Satan doing and how is he doing it? So that's the filter I'm reading through. Now let's go back and read verses 1 through 5 again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that first, Satan causes Eve to question God's word. Did God really say that? And I don't even think the main point of a lot of Satan's attacks are to get us to just throw it away all at once. That would be too obvious. If he can get you to simply doubt what God has told you, the door is opened and he has succeeded in starting the process of mistrust. Now, we obviously have to be on guard for the, the blatant attacks, the, the obvious things as well. But if he can just get his foot in the door with a small question of doubt, is that really what God, God's word can't mean that? I mean, it was written so long ago. Is that really what God means? He's got you right there. We often look for these big, obvious temptations, and like I said, we should, but we need to be vigilant against these small, dripping water on the rock type things that will slowly erode away. Next, notice that in responding to Satan, Eve employs legalism or a type of legalism, which is another thing to notice about the nature of sin and temptation. Look at verses 3 and 4. The woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, not to quote Satan here, but is that actually what God said? Look back at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, just one chapter to the left of where you are. Look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. He didn't say anything about touching it. Eve adds this prohibition to convince herself that God's requirements are too harsh, too restrictive. Sound familiar? 
It did for me. Have you ever taken God's good commandments, His just requirements, and made them into more than they were designed to be? Of course you have. We all have. Kids do this all the time. Only with them, we just usually call it exaggeration. Right? You give a child a command, which is for their good, maybe even for their safety, and they interpret that command as the most unfair, restrictive, harsh parenting that they've ever seen. And all the parents said, amen. Eve does the same thing here when Satan questions her about these restrictive requirements that God has put on them. And she makes it sound much worse than it actually was. She ignores the fact that God had given them literally every other thing in the garden. There is one prohibition, one command. And instead of being thankful for what God has given them, Eve chooses to focus on the one prohibition and makes it into something more than it is. The nature of sin and temptation sometimes include aspects of legalism. Next, Satan increases the intensity of his attack by directly contradicting what God has said. He moves from questioning, has God really said this, to what God told you was a lie. You will not die if you eat the fruit. So are you seeing the progression of what's happening here? How this works? It starts with a doubt, a question. Satan wants you to begin to question the goodness of God and what he has commanded us to do. Then he will cause you to think that God's requirements are too restrictive, too binding on me. I don't want this law on me. I don't want this prohibition. Don't tell me not to do something. If you tell me not to push the button, all I want to do is push the button. Don't tell me that. And then, once those seeds are in place of doubt, restrictiveness, over-strictness, he comes in and directly contradicts the revealed will of God and calls it a lie. But notice that even in this stage, Satan is using truth in his claims. Look at verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, is that a true statement? Satan is saying that if they give in to this temptation, their eyes will be opened and they will be like God. And he equates divine character with knowledge here. You will know what God knows. And the nature of human beings is to want to figure things out and know things. Of course, that was attractive. So what happened? In verse 5, Satan told them that if they ate, their eyes would be opened. Then what do we read in verses 6 and 7? chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who ate with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. Satan will use whatever means necessary to trip you up, even if that means using portions of truth and true things to trick you into thinking that this is what's really going on. This is how he works. He uses half-truth, distorted truth. And for those who perhaps lack in spiritual discernment, which is all of us at some point, we can be led astray because it sounds like the real deal. Now, consider the parallel between this temptation in Genesis chapter 3 
and that of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Satan tries the same tactics with Jesus. And this is, again, to reinforce the point that nothing has changed. It's the same kind of warfare. It's the same kind of battle. Satan tries the same thing in trying to get him to doubt the goodness of God, trying to get him to rely on himself rather on the Father. And how does he do it? You can either turn to Matthew 4 or listen as I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of work through it. He actually quotes Scripture to Jesus. He uses God's word to try to destroy God's son. His first appeal is to the physical weakness of Jesus. He'd been in the wilderness for 40 days without eating anything. So he tempts him with food or try to get him to use his power to satisfy his physical needs. And Jesus responds by quoting scripture. Satan then tries the spiritual aspect. He takes Jesus to the top of the temple and he quotes Psalm 91 to him in an attempt to get him to abuse the spiritual authority that he possessed. Jesus again responds with scripture. Lastly, Satan tries to reverse the order of worship and offers all the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus if he would simply bow down and worship him. And Jesus again responds by quoting scripture. Now, of course, this is meant to give us an example for how we are to deal with temptation and the word of God and its sufficiency for us in those situations. But what if someone said this? Well, this isn't really an accurate comparison because Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament, prophets, Psalms, Torah, and Eve didn't have that. She didn't have the scripture to go back to. She didn't have the Bible written out for her to, to kind of combat this temptation. So how would you answer that objection? She didn't, that's true. She didn't have it. But what did she have? Eve had everything she needed to be obedient to God's revealed will. Now, it's true, she didn't have the Bible written and recorded as we do or even as parts of it were for Jesus. But what she did have was the sufficiency of the will of God revealed to her by God himself. You see, when God requires obedience from us, he always gives us what we need to be obedient. Eve had enough information to be obedient. She did not sin because of a lack of information. And neither do you. And neither do I. We sin because inside of us all there exists this desire to throw God off of his throne and to seat ourselves there. Like I said earlier, we want to be the ones to decide what happens in our life. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to be in control. And Satan is right there to help us with this battle plan for our own personal insurrection. We need to know the origin and the nature of sin and temptation so that we are well equipped to be aware of his schemes and to fight against them in the strength that God supplies. Now, let's look briefly at the rest of the passage before we move on to the last point. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've succumbed to temptation and have transgressed against God despite knowing his will for this area. Notice the outcome of their sin in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Shame is almost always the eventual outcome of our sin. Embarrassment, shame, disappointment are some of the close companions to our sin. In fact, this is what usually keeps us from confessing our sin to God and to one another. We're ashamed of it. And so we keep it. We nurture it in the dark. Adam and Eve heard God coming to the garden and they hid because they knew they had done wrong. Their eyes had been opened as a result of eating the fruit. Now the last thing I want you to know about the nature of sin and temptation is this. Sin causes us to shift the blame and to put responsibility for our actions on someone else. Sin causes us to shift the blame and to put the responsibility of our actions on someone else. Look at verses 11 to 13. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The the, the woman, yes, the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Blame shifting, putting the responsibility on somebody else. It's been happening since the beginning. The Bible teaches us to confess our sins to God and to one another, to own up to our actions, to repent. Satan would have you believe that it's not your fault. You're just a victim of some circumstance, perhaps, and that your sin is justifiable because of the situation that was just outside of your control. I couldn't help it. I just found myself there. I'm not, I'm not responsible. It was their fault. You'd look at pornography, too, if your wife ignored you the way she ignores me. You'd struggle with anger, too, if your boss yelled at you the way he does me. Well, the government mishandles finances all the time. They're not going to notice if I do this on my forms. And on and on and on we can go with putting the responsibility on someone else. It's deadly. The only way to deal with sin is to trust in the finished work of Jesus that paid for that sin and confess your sin. Why it's so important to be in a church, to be in a place where other believers can come around you and hold you accountable. Sin needs to be exposed to be dealt with, and shifting the blame to someone else is not dealing with it. It's just putting it off till later. So, lastly, the third point I want to look at the purpose of sin. Next week, when Aaron continues in Genesis 3, we're going to deal with outcomes, the results of sin in the garden as it relates to blessings and curses, but I'm not going to get into too much of that today. I do want to ask a question to help us understand what's going on here, not from an immediate context only, but then kind of to dial back and see in the history of redemption, the whole of, of history, what's going on with sin. 
So the question I have as it relates to this original sin in the garden is, why? I like to know how things work and why things work, so I'm always asking questions like this. Why create a world only to see it fall into death and decay? Why put human beings on earth in a perfect environment just to have them fail and seemingly mess it all up? I mean, why not just skip that part? I believe the Bible teaches us about a God who does not respond to his creation. He's not sitting in heaven waiting to see what you or I will do, and then he decides what to do. He is a God who decrees his will. You can look at Job or Isaiah or the book of Romans to see this detailed even more. So how would you answer the why question? Why sin? Why Satan? Why a a history of redemption that is chock full of sinful leaders and failures, failing plans and lost hope? So thankful that God is kind to us and in his word he, he gives us the answer. So I'm going to answer the why question in two ways this morning. And in doing so, I think we see the purpose of sin. First of all, the purpose of sin is to help us understand our union with Christ, our connectivity to Christ, and the superiority of His redemptive work. So the purpose is first to help us understand how it works for us to be tied to Jesus. And turn with me into the New Testament book of Romans. Chapter 5, we had Don read a portion of this earlier, and we're going to read verses 18 and 19. So turn to Romans chapter 5, and follow along as I read. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. I love hearing those pages turn, by the way, it's great. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's referring to what we've just looked at in Genesis 3, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, again, this is referring back to Adam and Eve in the garden, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Paul is looking back at the passage we've just looked at in Genesis 3, and he says that it should help us to understand more of what Jesus did in his obedience. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding spiritual things. That, again, is nothing new. Remember in Jesus' teaching, he often spoke in parables, illustrations. That's why pastors use illustrations in their sermons, to help their people understand the spiritual concepts that are in the Scriptures. Paul understands Adam to be the head of all humanity, meaning that we are all in the line of Adam or in the lineage of Adam. You can trace back the book of Matthew starts with a long lineage tracing all the way from Joseph back through David, back through the kings and the judges and all the way back to Adam. If you want to read that, it's in Matthew chapter 1. There is no human who has ever lived that is not connected to Adam. And he says, Paul says here, that because of Adam's disobedience, everyone that came after him are under 
the same condemnation as Adam, namely sin. This is why we call it original sin. It's spread to all of mankind. But it doesn't stop there. And he says that in understanding our identity in Adam, we see more clearly how we can be identified with Christ as believers. If you want to see this concept distilled down to a single sentence, Paul does this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 22, he says, just a real succinct sentence, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Everyone connected to Adam will die as a result of sin. And that's where all of us are apart from Christ. But the good news is, is that everyone connected to Christ will live because of his righteousness. So in seeing what happened in Genesis 3, we see the beauty and the superiority of what Jesus did in his obedience. Where Adam failed, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, Jesus succeeds. And as all of Adam's posterity are tainted with sin and subjected to that futility, so everyone united to Christ benefits from his righteousness. The purpose of sin is to help us understand our union with Christ. The second way to answer this why question is to say this, that the purpose of sin is to make us long for the ultimate redemption that will come in Christ. To see this, turn one last place this morning. We're going to go one more place, and that's Romans 8, just three chapters to the right of Romans 5. And I want to read from verses 18 to 23. Turn just a couple pages. We'll read Romans 8, 18 to 23. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know That the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The creation was subjected to futility. Sin entered the world in Genesis 3. So who did this? Who subjected the world to futility? Is this text referring to Satan? Did Satan subject the creation to futility through sin? Keep reading. It says that the creation was subjected to futility in hope. Satan subjects nothing in hope. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. So who did it? God. God designed a world in which sin and death would come into existence. Why? 
What's the purpose? You've heard me say before that the Bible is full of contrast, that we see something illustrated one way to help us see more of something else. I believe that's part of what's going on here. It's to make us long for this ultimate redemption and to help us make sense of what happens in our lives. Sometimes things just happen as a result of sin and it seems so meaningless or insignificant. We don't know the purpose for it. This past week we were in North Carolina for a church planting conference. Flew back on Friday and Friday afternoon I was at home and all of a sudden, I mean out of nowhere, I had a, it was like I was trying to breathe underwater and I couldn't get a breath and I couldn't get a breath. I ended up going into the ER I had some, something in my lungs that had busted loose and was causing me to not breathe. And they kept me in for a few hours and it was over. And I'm back to normal. So what was the purpose of that? It didn't seem to really be caused by anything. It, I didn't do anything. Nothing kind of triggered it. It just came and it went. What are we to do with that kind of stuff? How do we, that, that, I mean, that's, our bodies, frail and weak as they are, are that way because of sin. So how do we interpret all the things that happen to us? What about your pain? What about your discomfort? What about your emotional suffering? What about all those things that are trickling down results of sin? It's to make you long for something better. This is not all we have. This is garbage compared to what's coming. And to see the bleakness and the destructive nature of sin helps us to say, God, bring redemption. Come, get rid of this wickedness and this evil. And to see our sin rightly helps us to long for the redemption that comes in Christ. In order to recognize sin and temptation for what they really are, we need to understand their origin, their nature, and their purpose. And I hope that in seeing those things this morning, you'll be able to get a better handle on how to recognize sin and temptation and how to fight against it. Let's pray together. Father, I am thankful for this time that we've had together. It's not pleasant to talk about sin and Satan and wickedness, but God, when we look at the darkness in our own souls and the darkness around us, I pray that you would help us to all the more clearly see the light and the hope of the gospel. That the sin that we daily fight against would be a constant reminder that this is not our home. We don't belong here ultimately, but we belong at home with you. So give us that longing for the redemption. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Come, Lord Jesus. I pray that through your word you would do a work. Lord, that if there are those here who do not know how to combat their sin, they would ask for help. Lord, for those who have unconfessed sin, that they've been hiding or pushing off on someone else, God, convict them, 
through your Holy Spirit, that they would bring it into the light and kill it and walk in a manner worthy of your gospel. So we thank you, Lord, for your promise to help us, that you will not lead us into temptation, but you will deliver us from evil. Help us to trust in you now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.